Thank you for joining us for another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with my co-host Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Amalgamated and Matthew Fairburn, Buffalo Bills writer for The Athletic. And uh, guys, bye week. Uh, time to hit the pause button on the Bills season, but uh, cannot hit the pause button on Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK because the people demand it theoretically. Thanks for joining me. But this being so. a podcast, they could pause the podcast at any point in time. That's Fast true. Rewind. Or skip it all together. They could take a bye week from us. As long as you smash that subscribe button, you can do whatever you want. You can mash any other buttons, play with any other toys you want after that. I'll check the uh, the numbers, and we'll see how many people took a pause from the from the podcast. No Joel Staniszewski this week because there is no Bills game. Joel uh, Joel had an off week uh, in terms of his record. He finally suffered a couple of betting losses. He went uh, he went five hundred last week, I think. Now he's hiding. Well, he's hiding on the bye week, so there's no game for him to handicap. But he. He went 2-2-1. Two, two, and one. He gave us some bonus picks last week that didn't pan out. Had he not given us the bonus picks, he would have been fine. But he's 13-6-2 on the season. That'll make you some money. Does he have any bonus bets for the bye week? Or is he in hiding, as Jonah said? He's afraid of his he, bonus bets now. I think he's in hiding. I haven't heard from him this week. I think he's uh, hitting the reset button. I wanted to wins. talk to him about that bad beat on the Bills game where the Bills fall down by – two points on the Hale Murray and Arizona doesn't kick the extra point on a two and a half point spread. Yeah. I, mean, I understand why the Cardinals didn't do that, but it's, you know, as a better, I would think that's a pretty tough way to lose. Depends what oh, number man. you got it on though. It was at two for a while during the week, I think um, maybe even less. Um, so they probably covered for some people, but yeah, you're right. If, if anybody was waiting until the last minute, they got, um, tortured really because they thought they were going to lose they get the hail mary and then they don't get the extra point so they probably thought they were going to win for a second i think the touchdown put it over so if it did yeah jordan boyer micah high tredavious white Derek burrows nate odoms if any of those bills knock that ball down it's not an over the uh not kicking the extra point I mean, I understand the reasoning, but I disagree with it because there is a possibility that the game, because it can't end on a defensive penalty, let's say something happens where there are two seconds on the clock and then there's an interference. You know, the Bills go for a Hail Mary uh, on, with, their, uh, with their possession and there's an interference that sets up a field goal. I mean, could you imagine the game ending on that because they chose not to kick the extra point? the Bills getting one last play and, and kicking uh, with, their, with their young kicker with his explosive leg and can go 60 yards. Maybe they try even a 70-yarder. I don't know. But yeah, you're way imagine the, the Bills winning the game because Arizona declined to uh, kick the extra point. You're kind of weighing the risk of I, – I don't know what the odds are of what you're talking about happening, and I don't know how many extra points generally get both blocked and returned for a touchdown. It's probably a really small amount. Um, 
going up three would probably, I, I almost feel like the bills would have been more likely to score a touchdown in the final two seconds than to somehow manage a field goal attempt. But like you said, Tyler Bass had shown them some range earlier in that game, probably could have hit from 60 plus. So uh, the risk of the, the point after was pretty small, but Cliff Kingsbury was playing the math all day. Um, or, a, or a penalty on the return somehow. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that game could have been extended by a play or two. A face mask or, you know, all of a sudden they're at the 47 and they've got a 64 yard try or whatever. And Bass looked like he could make from 64 on Sunday. So um, maybe maybe Kingsbury had the Bills in the in the two and a half points. Yeah, tough beat. Matt, have you ever seen at practice the Bills practicing that block the field goal and take it back and score play? Because I know you you notice all those trick plays on special teams at practice. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not at liberty to say. Uh, they, I, you know, they. I don't know that you see them. I, I was more wondering, like, how often do you think they practice the, the final play, right? The, the jump ball in the end zone play, because they do do end of game situations a lot, and they have a lot of that. But, um, you know, the, the idea of practicing for that emergency play, which they didn't really think was an emergency play, but yeah, I, I mean. You see them constantly in practice with the uh, scoop and score technique. Um, anytime the ball is on the ground, they're coaching those guys to grab it and run, even if it's an incomplete pass. Sometimes it's obnoxious, but they are practicing that. The uh, end of game thing, I'm guessing there's going to be a few more of those drills here in the final six weeks. Yeah, where are we with uh, the Bills here? At the bye week, uh, I actually feel better about them after that loss, not because they lost, but just because of the way they played. If you take a holistic view of that game and not get hung up on the final play and the fact that they lost and are now seven and three instead of eight and two, um, I come away from their performance in Arizona thinking probably more of them than I did before that game. Yeah, I think, you know, they've proven a few things in the last few weeks and particularly on, on Sunday and against the Seahawks that they're still capable as a defense of figuring out a quarterback and slowing down that aspect of a team's game. Uh, the secondary, I think, has started to play better. Uh, certainly last drive um, was a problem, but Kyler Murray had 170 yards passing before that. They've shown that they can do that. So, you know, they run into a good quarterback. You don't think they're necessarily going to get shelled. And I think their quarterback has shown he can come through at the very least in important moments. Uh, And the bad games like he had on Sunday or the bad moments that he had on Sunday aren't lingering the way they did in 2019. So he can pull himself together and – you know, have that final drive that we'd be having a lot different conversation um, about that game if, if that final drive stands. So those two elements should give them a chance to beat most teams. Now they can't run the ball and they can't stop the run. So if they run into the wrong matchup, they could be in trouble. If they run into the right matchups, they might be able to win a few games in the postseason. Yeah, I would agree with Tim's initial premise that I, th- I think the bills are better now than at seven and three than I thought they were at six and two. There was a level that they really could have reached with winning that Arizona game. We're winning two games on the schedule that 
myself and a lot of people I think thought they could lose both of those games. And then had they gone into the bye week eight and two and beaten both of these teams that are in probably the top third of the league would have been very impressive. And if you look at DVOA, FPI, the different computer power rankings, the Bills have gone up a tick or two even after losing that game because of how well they played against good teams. And they were right there. Losing that game at Arizona is like losing a basketball game on a half-court shot at the end on the road where a basketball coach walks out of that gym thinking, mm, we almost won. We, we kind of won that game. We lost on a fluke play. I don't know if that was a fluke loss for the Bills, but that's as close as you can get to winning without winning. And I think just long-term prospects-wise, that loss might have told us more to be confident about with the Bills than beating Seattle at home the week before. Yeah, it's it's funny you bring up like a basketball team losing from half court. Uh, like, it's weird to talk about the game dramatically differently because of the result of that play. And I don't think that's really the the appropriate way to talk about the game. It, it really was the final drive, and there was a. a you know, a failure on that final drive. But even to your point, up until the final 34 seconds of the game, they're winning the game. They did everything you would have um, wanted to see out of them from shutting down Kyler Murray as a passer to Josh Allen coming through with the important drive and a really great throw on the go-ahead touchdown. And then, you know, yeah, eight and two looks different than seven and three, but to, you know, focus in too much on the result just because of a crazy play, um, you know, kind of misses a lot of, you know, what happened on Sunday. Certainly you don't ignore the final drive because there was some, some coaching issues there. There was uh, certainly some undisciplined, undisciplined play from, you know, a few of their players, but that's 34 seconds over the course of a whole game that they really competed well in. And, probably should have won. So yeah, I don't feel dramatic. It's not as if it's like, well, before that final drive, I thought this was a team ready to compete for the Super Bowl, but that final drive, they ruined it. Now they're seven and three. I mean, it hopefully is something that they don't repeat um, better for it to happen now than in the playoffs. Six games left uh, going through uh, the games. And we'll do that with Gerald Dixon, actually. Uh, Gerald Dixon's going to be back on the show today. Also, a University of Buffalo football coach, uh, Lance Leipold, will be joining us to talk about his undefeated UB Bulls and their next game against undefeated Kent State, which is a sentence that has maybe never been uttered uh, unless you're talking about <clears throat> when they're zero and zero. Um. Kent State is the last team to defeat UB. UB hasn't lost in more than a calendar year since it lost at Kent State in what that have been the ninth game of last season. Grudge match. Big grudge match. UB revenge tour. Tim's a big Kent State fan. Kent Reed. Tim and Josh Reed. Reed. Kent State. <laughs> uh yeah, my brother and sister both graduated from Kent State. I went there for a semester and uh, didn't enjoy it. Not that it was Kent State's fault. It was just that I had already gone to Baldwin-Wallace and uh, wanted to transfer into the journalism program and decided I'll go back to Baldwin-Wallace and not have to wait to get into uh, the journalism program at Kent State and graduate in four years. Um, 
what else do we want to say here before we get to, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> before we get to uh, Lance Leipold? Well, we're less than a week, just a few days before the start of the college basketball season. We know maybe a little more than we did a week ago about schedules and what teams are playing where, but not a lot more. It's very tenuous as to how this season's going to start, as is college football, I think, is tenuous to how many games are going to be played and finished. I think there's more games canceled this week than any other previous week this season, up to 15. There's probably been two or three games canceled since we started recording. But college basketball is on schedule to start. UB has got some exhibition games on Wednesday night, Wednesday afternoon, and then Thanksgiving weekends when every team starts to get going with their non-conference schedule. You know what I just noticed on UB's official schedule? I, I can understand uh, somebody doing this at the Mid-American Conference site or something, ESPN.com, but at UB's own site on their schedule, they say home games take place in Buffalo, New York. Yeah, they do that. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I guess it's the University of Buffalo, and technically the South Campus is in Buffalo, and they're Buffalo. That's probably a branding thing more than location. But St. Bonaventure does that with saying St. Bonaventure instead of Olean or Allegheny. Niagara is in Lewiston. They don't put Lewiston datelines on their press releases. They put Niagara University datelines. I guess that's just St. Bonaventure, big... though, has its own zip code. So I think that that technically, or I th it may be an incorporated, uh, there might be a loophole there. But it shouldn't be based on your zip code. It's based on the actual town. What uh, St. Bonaventure is St. Bonaventure in? I think St. Bon. I think St. Bonaventure is an actual place. Well, we went over this last on the radio with um, forgetting his name, but the coach that played at Bona, and he's the Syracuse radio guy. I know his name. I'm just going to let you twist. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we talked about how it's in Allegheny. Colloquially, everybody, yes, Jim Salen, would say it's Olean, and then I think you confirmed with somebody or looked it up that they actually do have this tiny little spot on the map that's called St. Bonaventure, and it's neither Allegheny nor Olean. No one is listening to this show anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just All spent because, five seconds trying to come up with a name. Yeah, once Jonah forgot that name, they, they knew we couldn't, we can't be trusted. <laughs> can't be trusted. <laughs> we can we can edit that whole thing out like it never happened. But we're not gonna. In fact, what we're gonna do is we're gonna remind people that Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by Shampoo Travis Bison Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. Not Buffalo, folks. Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. And uh, without further ado... I believe CTBK also is a sponsor of UB Athletics. Let's check in with University at Buffalo football coach Lance Leipold about his Bulls as they also are on a bye this week. 
and get ready to face Kent State on November 28th in Amherst, New York. And joining us now on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants, it is University at Buffalo football coach Lance Leipold. I, I, wait, I guess I should uh, back it up a second. The undefeated University at Buffalo football coach Lance Leipold. Uh, it's, uh, you've been off to a good start, but here we are uh, mid-November. We shouldn't be talking about starts, uh, should we? Uh, no, it's, how's this been for you? It's been really unique, and and I think for everybody, probably in every facet of of life that that we've gone through a lot, and it's been a unique uh, few months. But uh, really proud of our our players, our staff on on how we've gone about it, and been able to kind of persevere and and actually get games played and uh, and and played well so far. Mid American Conference, well, I guess. Let's uh, take a. 30,000 foot view of the conference. You were selected to, uh, you were the preseason favorites to win the conference, which uh, comes with uh, a lot of other things like bowl games and usually top 25 and all that type of thing. How, what are the, how are the kids and, and you also handling that you're missing out on some of the, the cool bonuses that come with being the best team in the in this conference uh, because of the shortened season and the fact that other conferences got off to a earlier start than you did. Um, you know, we've we've always tried, Tim, in 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 our program to take it a day at a time and control what we can and kind of, as we say, be where your feet are at. And and right now, just getting out of uh, kind of isolation and quarantines and pauses have been probably more enjoyable than to really think about maybe what was missed. Uh, you know, we had two power five game scheduled, uh, some experiences that, that w- won't happen, but if we spend a t- lot of time worrying about what we don't get, we're not going to have, uh, have the chance to really accomplish things that we can. And that's been our approach to get the chance to, to play, uh, you know, just six Mac games is, is still a good, good opportunity. Um, you know, uh, you know, predicted to win something by by those of you in the media or you know uh, or anyone else. Speculation is is flattering and those things, but uh, if you don't go out and and execute the way you can, you you set yourself up for disappointment and failure. So again, we we've taken this approach of of the the challenges of head. Um, we're playing a really good Kent State team coming in a week from Saturday, who's also undefeated. A game that. Um, you know, we let slip away from us a year ago. So there's, there's plenty of things for us to work on and improve on. And whether or not uh, there's a chance to play for a conference championship or, or, or participate in a bowl game uh, are things that are yet to be determined. And hopefully we'll have that opportunity down the road. As a native Northeast Ohio, uh, Northeastern Ohioan, and uh, I attended Kent State for a semester, my brother and my sister both graduated from Kent I think that really sums up how strange 2020 is when you say out of your mouth a really good Kent State team, uh, because uh, that is not something I'm used to hearing. Uh, that uh, and it's, I covered them for my one of my first jobs was at the paper in in Kent, Ohio. Yeah, strange, strange, strange days uh, that Kent State is uh, is doing well. 
Yeah, Sean Lee, Lewis. Leading the country in scoring. Yeah, they're averaging 52, I think, a game. Uh, um, Sean Lewis in his third year, he's brought the uh, up-tempo offense. Uh, he worked with Dino Babers at Bowling Green, actually Eastern Illinois, Bowling Green, and Syracuse. So, uh, you know, they're going to try to run as many plays as fast as they can. And, I, you know, quite honestly, Tim, I think we could say if uh, there's not many people that many times will say an undefeated Kent State team playing an undefeated Buffalo team. And, That's right. And uh, I, I think, you know, again, focusing on ourselves for us to be the consistent program we desire to be, um, to have the opportunity, the a great opportunity to be on national television for the fourth consecutive week. Um, you know, I kind of, you know, I joke around, but our first year or so, you know, we played a lot of games right here on the computer, okay, on ESPN3 and ESPN. I don't even think there was ESPN Plus then, but, I mean, we, I think our, our, our program, our administration, everything has worked extremely hard that we've been able to, to have a chance to be in this national spotlight, so to speak, or national, and, and, it, and it continues to help our program. Lance, when you talk about, being on TV, winning on TV, having the success that you guys have had. It's the first time in the Division One era in several decades that UB's had consistent, successful seasons in a row. You're working on your fourth season that will probably be over 500. The facility upgrades you guys have made with the locker room and the long-awaited field house last year. And even the other night you were talking about the Bills' success has factored in a little bit for you guys. How have all of these successes and milestones that you've reached over the last couple of years, do you think raise the stature of Buffalo football when you're out there recruiting, talking to other coaches and people in the college football world? Well, it definitely does. You know, after, after our game, you know, and you turn your phone back on and, you know, you got a five hour trip back home and, and all the text messages and whatnot, but it's from, from peers in the profession, media people nationally, the opportunities we've had the chance to, to go there, you know, the, the Miami game, as you well know, uh, you know, it's 70 plus degrees on that day. You know, we've, you know, um, I've learned after being here for almost six years now, there's a lot of stereotypes about this area that, uh, that we have to overcome, but people that really don't know how special a place this is. And so when you get a chance to, to play and have good weather and uh, you know, because we, we have some beautiful weather at certain times of the year, as we know, but overcome some of those things, play winning football, have uh, support, whether it be administration, university-wide, community-wide, booster-wide, that allows us to, to upgrade the facilities to be on par with our competition. And I, and I mentioned the Bills because, again, what, what they do, again, the national spotlight that they get, that you can build winning footballs in this in, in this region, uh, I think is is a definitely a positive. And I I think uh, you know uh, you, the the area when we came in here, you know, is suffering from from having some success in in sports. And that's what I was told. And and when Danny White hired me, that was one of the things we wanted to continue to try to change and build and and, and change how we were looked at. And I I think we're getting there. I'm not gonna. I'll never be satisfied. And we'll continue to chip away and, and build that consistent winner that this university and area deserves. When it comes to recruiting, clearly the success you've had on the field shows you brought in good players. If you look at things like star ratings and when they rank the recruiting classes, uh, your first few years here, they weren't ranked as high. Now in the last couple classes, I don't know if they're all three star guys you got when I look at the verbal commits, but it seems that way. Are you... Do you feel that you guys are bringing in a higher caliber of talent 
in the last in this coming class? Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, we do feel we're recruiting better. We're getting in a, on players. We think a lot of reasons are for that. But, you know, I mean, I just got off the practice field and, uh, you know, uh, Chuck Harris, uh, Cam Lewis had stopped out. Cam Lewis with the Bills and, uh, uh, and Chuck Harris. And, and, you know, Chuck was in the Bears camp, was on the practice squad with Jacksonville, Cam obviously started a game with the Bills. You know what? Those are two star guys, okay? Nobody gave them a, you know, I look at Evan Kasarczyk getting in a camp. You know, we, what we have tried to do, and one is that we're not going to get overly hung up on star ratings, and that is we want to find somebody that fits our system, it's going to fit in here, um, but also someone that has a high ceiling in development. And, um, and, and there's different ways that that works, and I think our staff has evaluated well not always perfectly, but we've evaluated well and we've really developed what the players that we had to, to reach, reach potentials that they, that they have. So, but now if you can continue to get in on players and being in conversations against schools that you never were before, um, that, that again is going to continue to increase. I think we're seeing that a little bit more, Jonah. Um, but, but again, uh, uh, I would I would say when you look at even some of those first classes, uh, there are some players that, and again, you're going to have your top group. I've also said this about recruiting. I think one-third of the players end up like you expect them. One-third of them uh, exceed your expectations, and one-third ends up kind of disappointing you maybe a little bit for one reason or another, not meeting it. But if you can, and, and that's the way it usually turns out, the biggest thing is keeping guys. You know, in today's world, guys want to hit the eject button, transfer, but there's not instant uh, – playing time or, or gratification. And, and for us, finding that right fit here allows us to do the weight room development, the skill development, and do the things that we're looking for. How much have the facilities impacted recruiting? And I'm guessing it's generally been positive, but are there some tangible examples or anecdotes that show, yes, this guy chose us because now we are on par uh, with other schools that he visited and, and he likes what he sees out of our field house and locker rooms. Absolutely. Uh, we really haven't, you know, the locker room just was completed. We haven't really, we, we did some photos. Of it. We haven't even walked a recruit through that thing yet. So we're really hoping and looking forward to that day. Um, the field house, definitely. Um, I can tell you stories yet. And our next thing we have to improve on is our weight room. I, you know, we, we have some players and, um, you know, that, that we brought in and, and we brought in some good players and that uh, we thought it during a time during a coaching change ended up at staying with the school in our league that uh, that, that originally had, had they committed to, but they walked in and they did look at our weight room. It's mother and, and one of our coaches was standing behind them and they kind of looked over at one another and rolled their eyes, you know. So, you know, there are some things that you still got to do and they are extremely important, Tim, and, and they are. Um I guess the one example, and when Alan Green was here as our athletic director, and I try to use it, is that, you know, people go, well, why do you need a practice facility or not? Well, we know there's snow and there's weather, but there's, it's almost like a lab or a library that, that a student uses for, it's, it's not the classroom, it's the next part. And, and I can remember our first practice at the Ad Pro Center, my first year as a head coach, and our quarterbacks and receivers had never thrown the ball to one another and since I'd been hired, well, balls are flying all over. Right? Joe Licata's our quarterback. It's not Joe's fault. We have no timing. They haven't worked on timing in three months. 
now our players get like it's like open gym. It's like a basketball player never getting a chance to go shoot around in the offseason. Now they get a chance to go run routes and do things and work on timing and consistency. When that when that field house opened, after the very first practice, I had dozen guys come up and say, Is it gonna be open tonight? Can I come back in here and do something? And and that's when it's in Clement. Those are the ways the uncharted hours without coaches around where players take the next step. And I think those are huge dividends our program is benefiting from. If I could stay on the recruiting subject real quick. Um, it's a different, it's a unique season for, for all colleges where schools in New York and several other States will be playing in the spring. How will that affect you and your staff's approach and what maybe would you say, or have you said to, targets in these states about spring football not playing in the fall and how does that affect an athlete's ability to be recruited at this time well it's it's been very unique john just just like everything um you know right now um with our commitments which i can't comment specifically on players um we are pretty much uh at, at our limit where, where we want to be. And uh, hopefully when we, the early signing period comes in December, we'll be able to sign all those players. The unique part is none of them will ever be on, have officially been on campus, um, and which, which is different for them. And, and, and that's going to go across the country where it's going to be really unique about um, retention at, at all schools around the country when players have really committed to go play at places where they haven't really been on campus much if, if maybe not at all um, so the the 21 class is going to be unique in that way the other part of this component is the NCAA has paused everyone's eligibility so now your fifth year senior or your senior you know he has the ability to come back for another year and and you can be over your scholarship limit but you also have to have the finances to do so. So, um, you know, we'll probably stay at our, our, our 85 limit. So we have to make sure we have slots and all those things. So finding those players, those players are still playing. Um, I, I view anyone playing in the spring like they will in New York is, is probably going to help us evaluate more of the 22 class, to be quite honest. Um, hopefully, um, it may benefit our walk-on program. Um, and I know everybody wants scholarships and that, but hopefully there's going to be some under the radar guys that uh, um, may not get an opportunity. Unfortunate for them, but hopefully there'll be some slots for us to take advantage of and offer them an opportunity to compete at the Division One level. And and I, and if I could add, I, there's things I've learned, you know, since being here, and you know, New York high school football that doesn't get a lot of recognition for multiple reasons. We could analyze you know where it is on on the map as far as other places but the thing we've tried to do especially with our local players our section five and six players is because maybe there's not as much there's not a spring football there's not these other things these athletes have a higher ceiling sometimes than a place in a in one of the hotbeds of recruiting where they have um, zero hours for, you know, to start the day with weightlifting and do it. Sometimes that player's really close to reaching his fullest potential, size-wise, speed-wise, everything, football knowledge-wise, you know. And sometimes when you come into a state that's not as, you know, I guess I don't want to say the word serious, but there's not as many opportunities, 
you have a player that if he's really a good athlete, I said it's going to make bigger jumps. And I think when you look at some of the players in our program, Evan Kasarczyk, it was one that comes quickly to mind. Watch the growth potential of somebody like that. Yeah, Giovanni Ruiz was recruited to the track team, originally walked on football, and now he's one of your starting receivers. Yeah, exactly. There's a guy who's a walk-on, was injured two different times. You know, I quite, quite frankly, I told him he wanted, you know, what he's going to do to play. I said, Giovanni, if you really want to play and you're getting at an age, I think you may have to look at a lower level. And he was really upset with me. And I feel really bad because, but, but I'm not, I'm, I'm glad that it motivated him that, that he proved me wrong. And I'm the first one to say I was wrong, but it was mainly about time and opportunity. But you're right. There's a young man that once he gets a chance to have spring football, consistent weight program, staying healthy. He's put himself in a great, oppor- a great opportunity and spot to help our football team. Lance, I know that when you have a player like Jarrett Patterson and a run game that you do, it's pretty easy to identify what your team is all about and the persona that it takes on Tuesday nights or Saturday afternoons, whatever, what you're trying to accomplish. But three games in, Generally, a team is trying to figure itself out still, uh, and this is the type of year in a normal year uh, when you start learning what your team's identity is. So I guess my, my question is from a philosophical standpoint, you're three games in, you only have three games left on the schedule. Um, do you think you'll even know at the end of this year what your team was supposed to be about and who, you know, what, uh, what you were capable of? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, that's probably to be determined, I think. I, I think when you watched, if you watched our game against Miami, Ohio, I, I, I think you saw glimpses of what we wanted to be consistently. Now, it's not always going to work the way it did in the second half there, but a team that's going to generate play action, explosive plays, and not just to Antonio Nunn. We were able to get the ball to the tight end, Zach Lafay for some big plays. We were able to get Trevor Wilson, and then Giovanni Ruiz had a couple big catches. Then Antonio had his share. Now we got, we're, we're very diverse in, in what we're doing, but we're spreading that ball around. And then hopefully that, that, that's something that keeps the defensive coordinator up at night. And then, oh, yeah, we, you got two pretty darn good guys in the backfield that, that can run the football and an offensive line that was doing a good job protecting protecting the quarterback. That's what we where we strive for. And, and to play like that against the, the defending conference champ was what was really great to see. Now, last week's game, we, we were one more one-dimensional for multiple reasons. We got to find that. So that on that side of the ball. Defensively, honestly, Tim, we, we're not even close to being where, what, we, what we could be because of we're, we're just not healthy over there right now. Um, on paper, what, what we're going to be, our two starting cornerbacks have not, have not started yet. Uh, Ali Abbas is one of those corners has played nine plays all year, and Pre Washington hasn't even suited up yet. Tyrone Hill in all-conference safety missed last week's game. Um, Tim Terry's been battling a foot issue. Uh, we've missed Ron McGee, who's played excellent football at defensive tackle, played really well the first game, and he had a shoulder injury in that first game. Taylor Riggins is on watch lists and things like that, has not, has not played a down yet this year and may not. So, I mean, when you're talking that many guys on a, on a defense that, that, you know, every time you got all these starters coming back, um, you know, and, and, and we've had some growing pains and we struggled a little bit on Tuesday night, slowing down a Bowling Green team. So I'm hoping we can get some of those guys back. 
so that we will be able to say what time, what type of team we 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 could be. You know, I look at I looked at the schedule before the year. I've covered UB football for about fifteen years. I looked at the shortened schedule, the not having non-conference games, how good you guys were. I really thought that Miami game was a big gauge, but coming off that result, I see from my perspective an opportunity to run the table, to to have a kind of perfect season that Buffalo has never had before. You coached at Wisconsin Whitewater, I I believe it was five times you guys went undefeated in a season, had a run a couple years ago at UB where you won 11 to 12 games over the two seasons. You know, I kind of wanted to ask you, I understand – the, the success that you had at Wisconsin and here was taking it one game at a time. But do you recognize a unique opportunity with the way the schedule is lined up this year? And have, you know, do you think the team sees that at all? Um, well, you took my answer away, Jonah. So you've been around me long enough to know how I'm going to answer. I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to cut that <laughs> off at the end. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And then he took it off the table. So you're not allowed to say that. Yeah. Well, I, I'll say this is I, I think for anyone in the Mac, that that feels they're at a at a certain point in their program, um, taking the non-conference games against the Power Five opponent off the table gives everybody kind of a lot more level playing field. I'd, I'd say that. Um, and where it matches up, uh, yeah. When when they said we're going conference only and where it was going to be at, and um, yeah, do did I did I like our chances of of what we could do? But again, I, I, I hate to say it because it is, it's cliche, but if you start worrying about playing a game in December that, you know, that's not on the schedule that you haven't earned yet, you're, you're never going to get there. I, I used to say this at, at, at Whitewater. We'd have people call the office and ask what hotel we were staying at for the national championship. And you got to win four playoff games before you even go to that game, let alone you got to win your conference. So, you, and, and it, and from that day on, it was just like, you, you better stay where you're at. And like I said, we're playing an undefeated team leading the nation in scoring who came back and, and, and beat us in regulation after they were down by three scores. And we let it I mean, if, if, if we start talking about anything other than trying to slow Kent down and finding a way to get a win, everything else will be looked at as a disappointment underachieving season. So, and, and it's still going to be challenging. And then after that, you know, we haven't won down in Athens, Ohio yet. So, I mean, before we say anything is going to be given, um, we, we've got to sit there and, and, and stay where we're at. But again, to try to give you something off this, this question, I like our football team. I like where we're at. I think this is a group of guys that have been here long enough know that uh, it's, not a, it's not just a situation where we take the field and hope to win if we play well enough. They're, they're, that's different, okay? This is a group now that goes out there, and if they prepared the right way, they expect to win. And I think that goes to the other things that we had talked about prior to this, and hopefully that's the way we're going to continue moving forward. Lance, I won't use the word satisfied, uh, but what are you happiest with so far that you've seen through three games from your team? Our perseverance. I, I think perseverance just through COVID, perseverance of all the different things we've asked them to do. Um, you, you, you went on calls like this with some really disappointed faces and, and to watch them kind of learn and adjust and go through different things. Perseverance through some of the things I just talked about with able bodies. Um, 
you know, going, going through that, uh, um, you know, we, I, I walked into the locker room later doing, was ready to do a post-game interview and then we got in there and the team's waiting like they're always, and it was quiet. It was almost disappointed. It was, they were disappointed and I was disappointed that they were disappointed a little bit in, in the fact that it wasn't as clean a game as what, what we were, what we would expect or wanted. And to me, that's a step in the right direction as a program. When you know you can play better, we talk about having a standard of expectation. And when you know they didn't meet it, that they, they, they own it and, and understand that. I'll go back to 2017. We played at Minnesota and I remember getting back on the plane and our and boosters were on the plane and they were so happy that we kept the game close. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the days of moral victories, hopefully, around here are over with, okay? You go out and compete, you win, you lose. And if, you didn't, if you came up short, you came up short no matter where you're at. And, and though I appreciate it, I was, I was very proud of our team, and I knew we had taken a big, big step that first day and, 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 and had, that, had a chance in that game late. But we, a loss is a loss. And, and I think we – and if I, if I look at this year – you know, really from that Minnesota game on, the difference is that th- this program isn't that anymore, where, where you're just glad to play. You know, it's not like, oh, well, you know, yeah, we were up at Penn State at halftime last year, but they kicked our tail the second half, okay? No doubt about it. Those days are, either, are, are done, and, and then we either go out there and compete no matter who's on that schedule, and we go, and we're, we're going to fight through that. And I, I think that's what I'm proud of this group and coaching staff. Lance, is there anything you want to mention that we didn't ask you about? Oh, I don't know. Jonah, you probably have something that I forgot that you're always good at bringing back up. But uh, I, I'd say this. Uh, it sounds like a backhanded uh, thing of pretty uh, much saying that Jonah, Jonah, just when you think you're off the hook, Jonah makes sure to uh, ruin your day. I don't want to say ruin my day because I say this because I do appreciate <laughs> Jonah because I know he's, he pays attention to our program. And, uh, and, and he does a good job of bringing some things to, to light. So, but I, I guess the last thing, uh, we've talked about our facilities and recruiting and, and the underlying thing is uh, I guess I want to also make sure I tip my hat to our staff and, and our coaching staff. And, and uh, for, for a school in the Mid-American Conference, and, and I tried to do this when I put the staff together when I was hired as a head coach, is that I wanted to hire a staff that it was – possibly their best job they've ever had at, at this point of their career. And the reason was is so they wouldn't be looking to go back to the best job that they had before. And then we'd embrace what we have. We try to make it the best we can. And we've been able to keep the majority of our coaches here and create the continuity that I believe truly is needed to build a consistent football program. And I, I really am thankful for them because they're the ones that are, that, that are getting it done and putting the plans together and uh, allow, allow us to have that. So um, I thank them and everyone else that supports our program. You know, Lance, since you asked, I do, I do have one more uh, related to you and your staff. And, and to be honest, I thought it was one Tim was going to ask. I was leaving it on the table for Tim, a little, maybe a little bit of a juicy question. But I, I remember I covered this team a decade ago when Turner Gill was here, and, and it was after, a, I think, a 5-7 and seven win season, 5-7 and seven season. And there was a lot of talk about, Where's Turner going to go? You know, what jobs will open up for him? Nate Oates was here a couple of years ago. He was pretty open about the opportunities that would intrigue him and the ones that wouldn't. You know, what is your stance 
thoughts? What is your answer to that kind of looming question that comes up whenever you have success at this level about the opportunity to possibly, you know, move on and coach in the power five? Well, I'll, I'll answer it like with three different things. One is, uh, I guess the first and foremost was you, you never say never because, as, as you know, a lot of things have changed around me here while I've been here, like from the people that have hired me. Um, but I, I really enjoy working with Mark Allnut. Um, See, so you, you never know um, what happens. But when I interviewed for this job, um, you know, I, I had interviewed, and one of the things that I had said was, my goal was to build a program as consistent as Ohio University and Frank Solich. I worked for Frank for three seasons. And, uh, and I looked at that as like, this would be the last job. Okay. So you don't know. And that was going to be the pro. I think we've started to build that, that type of consistency. Um, you know, you get in a speculation game. You're, you're again, that's kind of like looking ahead on your schedule. You're, you're wasting time. I, it was funny when we were two and 10, you're talking about recruiting earlier. People we were recruiting against said, why would you go to Buffalo? They're going to get fired in a year. Two years later, we're winning 10 games and people are going, why, why would you go to Buffalo? They're, that staff isn't going to be there leaving for another job. Well, 10 losses and 10 wins, and I'm still sitting here talking to you. And uh, I hope we keep doing it for a long time. The 10 wins part, not the 10 losses part. Well, no, talking to you guys, though. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll keep trying. Well, what's to- worse? What's worse, though? Ten losses or talking to us? Flip a coin? No, no. Yeah, I would say. I tell you what, ten losses. Now, I um, ten losses is uh, that 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 was a long, hard year in a lot of ways, because uh, in a lot of different ways. And but I'll share this with you as well. One of the other reasons I left Whitewater. And, and, and took a job, unfortunate at the FBS level, but a job like Buffalo was when I got my first full-time real job as a position coach at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, Division II school, uh, we were one in 10 uh, my first year. We were three and eight the second year, and we were 10 and two the third year. I viewed that even through my times at Whitewater, as the most enjoyable time in my coaching career. It was hard and it was, there was a lot of tough days. And again, when you're not sitting in the head coach's chair, there's a lot of other stuff that you don't have to worry about during those tough times. But I really enjoyed watching that come together. And I wanted to experience that again. That's what I want to do. I inherited uh, an excellent program that was on really good footing at Whitewater. To get it over the hump and then sustaining it was very difficult and challenging and rewarding, but it was at a good point. And the next part of the challenging part of a career was to take something that hadn't had much success. This program won 27% of its MAC games and 37% of its FBS games overall before we got here. And to see where we're at, that was the next challenge. And, and uh, we're taking those right steps right now. Lance, thanks for doing this. Um, good luck the rest of the season. I hope you play all six games uh, and a seventh and an eighth, yeah. right? You want to you finish this season with eight games, right? That would be the goal. That would be the goal. So, But uh, I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thanks for asking. If there's another opportunity we could do it, love to do it. Right Stay on. Safe. Take care. Right. Thank you, Lance.
And back for what has become a weekly segment on Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK is former Bills scout Gerald Dixon. And when we relaunched the show a couple of months back, I did not anticipate uh, this blessing of having uh, Gerald Dixon to come in and give us his thoughts on the Bills and the NFL, uh, whether it be X's and O's or just philosophical approaches to players scouting it's just been um, it's been a joy to have uh, Gerald Dixon so he's back with us here uh, Gerald thanks for doing it again man I appreciate you guys having me on yeah it's uh, here we are at the bye week uh, six games left uh, the Bills are in first place albeit by just a half a game over the Miami Dolphins and the Dolphins uh, playing uh, this week they're favored over the Denver Broncos so we could be looking at a tie uh, atop the AFC East but um you know, let's uh, let me just get your general thoughts on the Bills here at seven and three, uh, with a break, a chance to catch a breather, and uh, and then get ready for the home stretch and uh, and trying to find uh, some real momentum heading into the uh, postseason. Well, I mean, seven and three, you're you're in a pretty good spot. Eight and two would have been much better, but you can take a couple of things from what happened last week, right? Um, you can take the plus from it that. Your quarterback came back. Um, your offense came back in the last second and took the lead. Um, defense obviously gave it up at the end, but those are two correctable plays that you can go into bye weeks. And, you know, one hurts real bad, but the other one's a good feeling. All right. So taking away from the game, you got you got some stuff to work on, which is always good um, going into the bye week. Um, not saying it's a an awful and negative thing. It's a terrible feeling of taking a, a loss going into bye week, but it's something that you can learn from. And I know that Coach McDermott is always preaching. Um, it's not failure. It's not disappointing. It's a teachable and in the moment to learn. So I know those guys are going to go into the week um, and, and get some good stuff out of it. But just touching up on the on the record and 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 from my point of view, things that they are doing well and things that they can improve on going into the stretch and after you cut the turkeys when real football starts um, to count. Because these games are the momentum builder going into the playoffs. Right, you look at it and say, well, you found your franchise quarterback. Let's put that to bed, the conversation about that. let's We, we, don't, we don't need to have that anymore. So you got your quarterback, and he's playing um, at a pretty high level, right? You found some guys, some pieces on offense in terms of your receivers, right? So you got the young rookie that's probably one of the better blockers out there, man. Um, Davis can block his tail off, and when he's asked to make plays, he's making some good plays, right? You got your number two player, John Brown. I mean, he's a little bit banged up here and there, but you found that piece. Cole's Be Cole Beasley um, in the slot is a sultan of the slot, one of the better slot players. Offensive line, your left tackle's playing well. Now, when you start going into the guards, I mean, it's kind of been up and down because there's been pieces been in and the guys been out, and the injuries kind of really made that cohesiveness and continuity not there yet so to say your right tackle um, Williams is playing very well um, so to speak and we go back to the interior of it right so now that you go into the off week you can have a good week of practicing and coming back and saying what combination should we go with moving forward if Cody Ford comes back um, is that the piece that you want um, Mitch Morris, one of the better centers in the NFL. Um, you want that in there. And then you got Feliciano that came back and playing with a nasty attitude, blocking pretty well. So 
it's an issue, but it's a good problem to have when you have real good players. So on that side of the ball, it's pretty good. You still got to figure out the running game, but that's the offensive line playing together um, has a lot to do with it, um, in my opinion. Well, let's stay with the offensive line. You mentioned there that they do have options, and one of the reasons uh, that I think – uh, maybe it shouldn't be as a Bills fan too overly concerned is the uh, the value that Brandon Bean and the scouting department have put on versatility among their offensive linemen. It helps them make for some more interchangeable parts when a player like Mitch Morse, uh, if he needs to leave the lineup, which he did because of uh, the concussion a couple of weeks back. Uh, but the other positions too are very flexible that provide these options. But like you say, the uh, they haven't... Uh, they haven't had the unit that they that they intended to be their starting unit for for any games so far this year. So, what do you make of what do you make of that? And I guess do you have an opinion on Mitch Morse not playing, even though he he was cleared to play uh, uh, Sunday in Arizona. Well, my opinion on Mitch not playing is I, I'm I'm not in the building, so I'm not going to jump into why and why not. If if it was a coach's call, maybe they felt that he wasn't ready. Um, mentally to go into the game. And the other player, Feliciano, might have had a better week of a plan. And going to the bye week, you give a, um, a player such as Mitchell, so to say, a week off and get ready for the final stretch, that might be a play into it. And also you have another chance to look at um, Ike, Butker, right, to see is, is he a player? Can we count on him moving forward? Um, if we do lose Mitch, um, for a longer period of time, is Ike, Feliciano, and Winters a better group than Ford, Winters, and Feliciano? So it's a, it's a good way to look at it in terms of seeing where you truly are as, a, as an offensive line and, and see what the best combination is. How much do you think that that offensive line – that's one piece of the running game, certainly, but – what else have you noticed with their inability to run the football? I think there's a lot that goes into it that maybe people don't see, but what have, when you've been watching, what do you see as some of the problems there? All right. So for me, um, motor, I thought motors, some of his best um, traits coming out was his ability to make um, players miss in close confines, right? His, his elusive ability. And, or is it looseness? And to create plays when you have um, a free hitter in the box. And I haven't seen that uh, this year. And I don't know if that's because he's hurt, uh, if he's put on some weight and he's not that shifty. He, he just doesn't look as shifty as he, as he was last year. So that's a part of it. Second part of it is just being creative, right? You're, you're as creative as they are in the in the pass game. You'd hope that you see some more creativity in the run game, and when you run the ball, you have to stick with it, right? So there's times that you're going to get one yard, you get two yards, three, and then here comes thirty. But the second that you move away from it, you don't get that feel that those big guys up front need. And to start weighing down on those bigger guys up front. Because end of the day, football is a big man's game. Big people move and other big people, you create lanes. So you have to do it over a period of time to get that feel um, both ways. Gerald, I want to ask you a, a philosophical question related to that at all levels of football. I cover 
University of Buffalo football team runs the ball as well as any in the country and, and is as run dominant as any team in the country. The Bills on the other end of the spectrum are a team that have abandoned the running game for a whole game and pass a lot more than they run. How important is balance to success on offense? Well, balance is important, right? But you got to think of it as this. There are times that you go into a game that you have to adjust. And if you're going into a game with the secondaries really struggling and your best, better players are receivers and your best players are quarterback, you got to get the ball into those guys' hands, all right? If you throw the ball for five yards, it's just as good as a five-yard run. But where it really comes into play is when you have to close games out, right? And you say, you know what, we got four minutes left. You get going to your four minutes offense, and you have to run the ball to kind of like just take away the time, right? And to me, that's when it comes into play. And then you got to think about it as a mentality and a mindset. If you're a passing team, your defense is going to struggle against the run because you're not seeing that on a day-to-day basis or throughout training camp where good's going to, where good is going against good, right? So your run game, your run game on offense going against a run game on defense. And it's a mentality that you just got to have at the end of the day. And I think that's where I don't really care about balance. I care about the ability to do it when you need to do it at any time. That uh, just to wrap up uh, offense, because I know we're going to we'll, – we'll get into uh, defense here and, and your thoughts on uh, position by position – uh, and units, uh, what have you, uh, on the defensive side. Uh, but, Gerald, what are your thoughts on Bills at tight end? And, of course, they've they've had trouble with health there, uh, Dawson Knox, because of the concussion and the different weird COVID things that have happened right. that have removed Knox and also Tyler Croft from the lineup here and there. Um, how much does the Bills' tight end play impact where they are as a running team right now? Um, I, I mean, if you have a good tight end, it helps. That can truly block at the point of attack and create some movement. But in my opinion, I, I don't truly see that with either one of the tight ends that the Bills are using. Now, your best blocking tight end is Lee Smith. But when Lee's out there, I mean, everybody in the NFL knows that he's out there for a reason. He's the sixth offensive line. Um, I've done Tyler Croft for a while um, since he's been in the NFL, and I – I wasn't a big fan of his ability to block. I thought he was solid at it. And uh, at the end of the day, a, a solid tight end in the NFL. Um, the second-year guy, 88, Docs, Knox, I mean, Knox Dawson. Uh, is it Dawson? It's Dawson Knox. I Dawson, Dawson Knox, right. Knox. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're, you're taking a, a former walk-on quarterback with some athletics traits, speed, Sometimes you see some dynamic plays out of them, but the consistency of catching the ball and overall just physicality in terms of when he's blocking, you don't see that. So he's a developmental guy that's learning on the job, right, which is tough when you're asking him to block defensive ends and linebackers that I don't think physically is capable enough to do that yet. But – Ten personnel to me, when you go four receivers, is probably their best bet. So that's why I didn't really even mention um, the tight end because when the tight end's in there, I think they're they're that's not the best personnel group for them. 
You mentioned uh, something that I find pretty interesting, the idea that the Bills' run defense might be suffering because they don't see a good run offense uh, in practice and you don't have you know, the best going up against the best. This is a, not a new problem for the Bills' defense, um, you know, allowing these big games on the ground. Um, what are you seeing from, you know, whether it's the front seven or scheme-wise that's allowing this to continue to happen? It was the seventh time under Sean McDermott on Sunday that they've allowed 200 yards of rushing in a game. Well, like I said before, when you, when you talk about run game, um, when you talk about – let's talk about first on the perimeter – Perimeter, you got to have those guys on the edge, right? Defensive ends setting the edge. And you don't see that consistently enough. And when I talk about setting the edge, I'm talking about defensive end getting off into either the tight end or the tackles and knocking them back into the backfield and creating a new line of scrimmage with the ability to shed and get off and make a play. You don't see that consistently out of Jerry, Mario, or Trent. Um, and now your safety's coming to play where you have to have some bigger guys to come down there when they do get down there to make tackles, but make some physical tackles. So when you have safeties that are, are filling that alley and running an alley that are 5'10", 195, 200-pound guys, over a period of time, they're going to get worn down. There are going to be some missed tackles when you're going against bigger physical backs. And you've seen that over a period of time when teams start running to perimeter. And then your linebackers now come to play on the second level where they got to get over the top of blocks, scrape, get downhill, and make tackles in space. And even though that Tremaine has tremendous range, when you see him get in space, oftentimes you see him miss tackles because he's 6'5". Right? When you're 6'5", you got long legs, it's, it's hard to get into position and come to balance fairly quick and react and make those tackles out in the open. So those are the, the, the things that I, that, that I see on the perimeter that can they get fixed? Yes. Are they going to? Well, it's the only time will tell. But if that does not get fixed over a period of time, when you get in the playoff, the games get tighter, possession gets shorter, and you don't want to give up 200 yards in the run game, um, in the playoff game. Now when we get to the interior – it's big guys, right? Big on big, mano on mano, tough on tough, and strength and size wins for the most part. And a nasty downhill linebacker, either your Mike, Sam, or Will coming down there to cause a major collision and knock guys back. So when you have Jefferson, right, Ed Oliver, Zimmer's probably playing the best out of all the uh, out of all the group in my um, all the guys in the group in my opinion. They aren't setting that line of scrimmage and getting off of blocks and making tackles in the backfield enough to negate those um, big runs up the middle. And when you aren't taking on blocks and keeping blockers off of your linebackers at the second end, I mean the second level, now those blockers are getting into the lap of your linebackers. Now that's creating more space, more gap for those running backs to find those holes. So you got to go either one way or the other. You got to say, I'm going to take on blocks and not allow the offensive linemen to get off into the linebackers, right, with, with size and strength, or I'm going to 
single gap penetrate, get in the backfield, and make sure that the running backs either stutter their feet or they're not getting down into my gap. So I don't see either one of those happening on a consistent basis. What would you say is your your year two, you know, we're halfway through year two on it, Oliver, now. Um, complicated sometimes from the outside to, to look at defensive tackle play. Uh, people want to see numbers, but that doesn't always tell the whole story. But this guy being a top 10 pick, um, there's a certain level of expectation there. What, what's your thumbnail sketch of, of what Ed Oliver has been for this team halfway through his second year? Um, if I had to come up with a word, just inconsistency. Inconsistent play, um, both as a pass rusher and a run defender. You, you see flashes of explosiveness, um, ability to single gap, penetrate. But there's times as you see that the small guy, he plays small, right? He's small and he plays small. And you see bigger offensive linemen get on him, engulf him in the run game. And then he doesn't have enough strength, for the most part, against double team to hold up. So my opinion is he has to figure out what works for him and do that on a consistent basis. But he's, in, he's been an inconsistent player in my eyes. And when you're a top 10 pick, inconsistency doesn't work out for the most part. How about the defensive backfield, Gerald? That's your – area of expertise, and uh, I'll save the question uh, about uh, how to defend DeAndre Hopkins and maybe uh, your thoughts on that play. But uh, as the bi-week overview, uh, where are you with this uh, defensive backfield? Well, when you look at development, right, I think that's the the best group to me that's been developed. Um, Because you got – obviously you got your number one corner, but – Levi Wallace was a was a free agent, right? Now he's a starter in the NFL and a solid player, right? Um, the young guy that came in, uh, the seventh round out of Pittsburgh, made some very good plays. Um, you got an older guy in, in Josh. Josh is just an older guy that you don't see the same burst he never he wasn't he wasn't a fast guy to begin with but what he what he really want what he won on for the most part was ball skills and just his overall instincts and as you get older you can still have those instincts you can still have those ball skills but at some point you're gonna have to run with younger younger guys and that's where he's struggling but the corners i think are holding up pretty well because if you look at the game um, last week i want to say going into the last two drive drives Kyler only had 170 or 80 yards um, throwing the football. 170 and going into the last right? last drive. Right. And they they did a pretty good job on Hopkins for the most part uh, until, you know, the, the last play. But their safeties, I think they might be the best duo. If not number one, they're two. I mean, those guys are playmakers. They're tough. Um, leadership uh, mobility because you always see them communicating uh, up in guys' face. And to me, there's a straw, straw that really stirs that drink on defense between Poyer and Hyde. I, you can't ask much more out of those guys other than knock the ball down on last play, but that's just one play out of 
so many plays that they, they've made over the, the, the season. Take us through that play. Um, and what's from a technique standpoint or a coaching standpoint, um, and obviously when you can slow it down and we can talk it out as opposed to the five seconds in which it happens in real time. Um, but what, what's supposed to happen on that play that perhaps didn't? Well, if I can go back in history, I, you know, th- that last play of the game really, it sucks. Cause I remember we had to go through that when I was at university of Alabama, we played LSU the week that LSU and Kentucky played. If you guys remember that play where, uh, who was the quarterback? Was it Randall? Threw the ball up. And Ellis in the that's his game where Kentucky was splashing the Gatorade on their 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 coach. And he made that last second grab to end the game. I went through hell. That whole secondary went through hell that week because the whole thing that we had to come up with was forget trying to intercept the ball at the end of the game, pull the ball down. Right? But getting to the the last play of the game, that play was set up two plays before that. Um, it was the same formation. Um, they ran the same concept. And if you watch film, Kristen Kurt on the second to last play was wide open, right? So I don't know if anybody was upstairs and saw that. You know, Sean called a timeout. He went and adjusted and fixed that. And they had trips to the right. Nuke was by himself to the left. So they tried um, the Buffalo Bills to get a, a four-on-three concept. That's four defenders on three receivers, so you always have to create an extra man. And to the weak side where Hopkins was, a two-on-one situation with the safety bodying back over there. Now, everybody puts it on the secondary, but the game of football is an amazing game because it's a team game. And if everybody's doing their job, for the most part, that play is going to work. Now, up front, you had Mario Addison at the right end. Um, I think Quinn Jefferson was the next defensive tackle in Ed Oliver and Jerry Hughes. Now, as we spoke about last week, we talked about keeping uh, Murray in the pocket. Well, that's what you want to do on the last play or second to last play of the game. You don't want to give the quarterback time outside of the pocket where now you're in a, a plaster position where you have to say defensive back plaster on your man. And now that's when you get chaos and, and plays get thrown up and the ball gets thrown up and guys make catches. So now if if Mario Addison comes upfield and sticks a and sticks a post into the ground, say, Calvin Murray, I don't care what you do, you're not getting outside of me. Right? The two guys up front, right, pass rush and push those the the interior offensive linemen in the in the lap of a five ten quarterback's lap and generously <laughs> and force that quarterback now to put arc and touch on that ball to get it over the top. Now you're giving those guys in the back end a better chance at knocking the ball down where the ball is not on a flat line and now everyone's scattering and moving in in total different directions. But now when you come down to the moment of truth when the quarterback does get out of the pocket because, again, he's a phenomenal athlete and uh, you lost contained by the the defensive end. So there's something that comes on to that too and and there's some blame on that too. Now you got to say Tredavious. Right. It's not a, it's, this is not the time to go up and get an interception. Right. Your stats don't need to get padded on this one. Right. Everyone recognizes in the NFL that you are one of the premier corners. Regardless if you pick it off or you knock it down, you're going to be totally fine. Right. So for Tredavious, you got to go and get into the body of him, almost like you're boxing out and rebounding, right? 
If you're boxing out and rebounding, you get body on him, right? You're not going to run into him giving pass defense, but he had enough time to locate the ball, which you've seen him turn his head around and see it. Furthermore, he should be playing deeper and coming up for that play, not running backwards and losing the best receiver. And everybody knows it. you can't let him go up and dunk on you like he did. But let me get back to the play, right? So you get into his body, box him out, and then you go up vertically with him. And then your whole entire job is to go up, put your hand on the ball, and pull that ball down to the ground. I'm talking about you want to do a volleyball spike, not go up and try to contest with a 6'2 receiver, you being 5'11", he's going to win for the most part. And then you saw guys with their eyes closed because most of the time when, when you come into contact, guys close their eyes. So, but in that situation, you want to keep your eyes as wide as possible, open as possible, go up and knock the ball. Poor had his eyes closed. Micah had a chance to go up and, and get the ball, but that ball was already in Nuke's hands. And like I said last week, attitude, uh, competitiveness, is not you're not going to – He's not going to allow you to get that ball out of his hand. So it really came down to those simple points. Do you feel uh, of those three guys, do you feel empathy or like, you, you play the game so you can say, I guess you can say sympathy. Like who do you feel worse uh, for of, of those three guys who had a chance to break it up? I'll tell you the truth, Tim. My, uh, I don't get feelings involved with all that stuff. Man. It's, no. They're professionals. Um, you have a job to do. Um, I'm pretty sure they were coach up to do that job, it now comes down to the unselfishness of a player um, wanting to win the game more than wanting to add an interception to end the game. Knocking the ball down in that situation, just as valuable as picking the ball off, in my opinion. We, uh, we didn't get to hear from Tredavious White after the game because he didn't talk to reporters, but I made mention in my column that you have to wonder if he's remembering last year's playoff game against DeAndre Hopkins. And he maybe wanted to make a statement on that last play of getting that interception uh, as, uh, as a, as a clap back to the playoffs last year. And maybe that was on his mind. And, and as you say, again, I'm, I'm guessing I'm totally speculating, but I think it's human nature. Uh, I think that makes sense to me is that uh, he wanted to he just wanted to, he wanted to respond. Yeah, and, and to me, regardless of what the name on the back of that jersey is, if it's White, Anderson, Dixon, Graham, right, you got to think team first. And last second of, 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 of games on Hail Mary throws, every single defensive back coach and defensive back in America, if you're thinking consciously, you're saying, I got to pull that ball down. I'm not going to tip it up because if you tip it up, there's a chance that you can ricochet off somebody's hand and the receiver comes in and, and catches it. If you try to go up, it might go through your hands, and, and it, it creates a bunch of different scenarios that you'd rather not try to create. You want to just end the game. The game You want the game to be over. Forget the stats. The stats should have happened seconds before that. Get the game over with. And it's a, like I said, it's a teachable moment for all those guys on the back end because – it's going to come down to another Hail Mary throw at some point. If it's not the next game, it's going to be in the playoffs. And I'm pretty sure they're going to get drilled and coached up properly. And they have pride in that locker room, and, and they're, they're, they'll figure it out. But that's just a teachable moment for me. What about the tactic you see a lot of coaches use of putting a wide receiver, a tall wide receiver, a tight end, 
in the, in the secondary to guard against Hail Marys. Is that something that would have helped on a play like that and the Bills should maybe consider going forward? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, those guys have that in the playbook. Yeah. I mean, that's one, I mean, they're, they're professional. Does that work? Does that tend to work well? Yeah, it, it, it works well if it was six seconds left on the clock, right? Because did they have 12 seconds left or was it? 11. 11. I'm sorry. Okay, 11. So you're, you're thinking you can get two plays out of this, right? So if they run a quick out and throw it to the boundary, you catch it, get out of bounds, you have six, maybe five seconds left. That's when you go into your final play um, where you put a, a taller guy back there to knock the ball down. But I'm, I'm thinking they believed it was going to be more two plays left in the game than just a singular play. So That's they what Sean McDermott that. I just don't think they went to that format. Sean McDermott, after the game, when I asked him something along those lines, the thought of having a taller guy back there, he essentially said that they didn't think it was the last play of the game, so they weren't really in Hail Mary mode. And it wasn't really a Hail Mary in the traditional sense of a Hail Mary as we've come to know it. That wasn't necessarily um, the design. Gerald, I want to get your input on what happened before that play to let them get to the 43-yard line um, after, like you say, they had Kyler Murray bottled up to 170 passing yards before that drive, and then in a matter of 22, 23 seconds, they get from the 25 up to the 43. What did you make of how they were playing defense before they even got to that Hail Murray, as it's being called? <laughs> well, I got some, I got some stubborn behavior in me, and some and when I was coaching, I, it, you can say it's stubborn. But I, I never wanted my players to ever feel like I, I didn't have faith in what we practiced all week in terms of how I was calling the game or the way that I wanted them to play. Um, and, and I say that to say this. They had probably one of the better strategies and schemes to stop um, Kingsbury, um, Cliff Kingsbury um, from throwing the ball. And I believe if they would have just kept with what they were doing on defense instead of going to almost a preventative defense and a prevent defense, they would have probably been in better shape. Now, that's going back and looking at the film and doing all When you're in that situation, you're thinking, hey, listen, let's just get out of the game and, and that. But I would have stayed more with our, my traditional calls and let the chips fall where they may. Well, we've got your – take on the cornerback aspect of things. Has Gerald Dixon, the quarterback, ever had one of those Hail Mary situations? Uh, quarterback, no. You know what? I never had that chance in high school to throw <laughs> it up. Uh, but I've had situations at the end of the game where, like I said, that whole entire week before we played LSU my senior year was hell because we practiced – the last play of the game, at least 15 to 20 minutes. And I remember just pulled the ball down, spiked the ball, and we had drills for it. And <laughs> we ended up going down to um, Death Valley and beating a tar out of LSU, 31 to 0. And the year after that, they won the national championship. So don't know when the last time Nick Saban got blanked it like that. <laughs> 
What, uh, let, let me, uh, and then we'll wrap it up here, but let's take a look at this schedule, uh, Gerald. Let me just get your thoughts. And for the record, uh, in case you're listening and, and you don't uh, have the schedule memorized out there, uh, the remaining schedule for the Bills, uh, they come back from the bye week. They're at home against the Chargers at San Francisco on Monday Night Football, Pittsburgh at home, at Denver, at New England on Monday Night Football, and then finish on January 3rd at home, the regular season finale against the Miami Dolphins, which uh, I think uh, just a few weeks ago, people were thinking, well, maybe they'll, uh, that'll be the game that uh, they get to rest uh, the starters. <laughs> and now the Miami Dolphins just won't go away. That could be a very important game. Uh, you know, first a, a bye could be on that game. The division could be on that game. Uh, Gerald, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that uh, on that home stretch? Well, what, I mean, you have games that are, are going to be playoff-type games, right? So if you want to go game by game, you can give me the game, and we, we can talk right through it real quick. Um, you, go ahead and give well, me the first come back against the Chargers. And, you know, I, I know your, your boy Anthony Lynn's been having a rough go, but, uh, but the Chargers are an interesting team. They're very competitive. Uh, you know, there's, there's no walkover there for sure. No. So the, here's, here's a good thing about um, the Chargers in the last few games. Chargers in Seattle, like their defense is similar, right? Um, so game plan-wise, you can, you, can, you can knock that out. But if those two defensive ends come back um, and they're healthy, um, Ingram and Bosa, now they, they, they pose a problem to your offensive line and the way that Josh is going to play. And coming from West – um, they come in the east. I, I would say the Bills should handle those guys fairly well. You got a young rookie quarterback. Uh, you saw what um, Flores did to him last week. It, he confused the heck out of him by putting guys up in the A gap. A lot of stuff that Leslie and and and, and Sean did against um, Russell Wilson and confused Russell. I think they can they can go into the same bag of tricks and confuse this young guy and pull out the victory. And then and if it's and if you're if you're I'm sorry to cut you off, but if no, no, you're a team, like, those are the games you go in and say, hey, listen, we're gonna mop these guys up coming off the bye. Uh, we're still pissed off of what happened, and your young um, cornerback Tre'Davious says, you know what, you guys got Keenan Allen, I'm gonna put it on Keenan and let the rest of the world know that I'm back. Statement game. Uh, interesting uh, game, I think, from Josh Allen's standpoint, going to San Francisco. It's technically his homecoming game. Uh, it's, as about, it's as close as you can get to Fireball, California. Um, uh, Oakland, uh, he didn't have a chance to play uh, at the Raiders. It is a Monday night football game. Uh, Josh Allen seems to get the jitters when the spotlight's on. Maybe it's a good thing that there won't be people in the stands, and then he doesn't have to worry about entertaining all his old high school classmates and friends and family and he can just concentrate on playing a football game. But anyway, uh, San Francisco also, who knows what they are? Um, their team has just been so devastated by injuries and what have you. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's tough to handicap that game. Well, yeah, I don't get into the betting thing, but I can get into the, the, the whole coaching philosophy deal, right? So you got um, Kyle Shanahan, one of the better play callers, but McVay, Shanahan, similar offense, right? So you have some – understanding of what you're going to get. The guys on defense can go back and pull out what you did against the Rams and say, you know what, this is some of the same stuff that we're going to see. Um, 
don't know if the quarterback's going to be ready to play. I doubt if Jimmy's going to be there. So it's a Monday night game, and again, you're in the, you're in the stretch. If you believe that you are a Super Bowl and playoff caliber team, you go on Monday night, and Josh, if you want to be put into that category of elite quarterbacks, and if the team wants to go into that category of one of the teams that should be taken seriously for a playoff drive, you go in on Monday night, and the whole world is watching, and you put a stamp and say, okay, world, you've heard about us on Sundays, but here's Monday. We're here to stay, and we're a real team, period, and move on. Well, there's another Hello World game right after that, too, because that might be the last remaining or the biggest remaining measuring stick game. I guess, well, maybe not, because who knows, with the Dolphins in the, in the finale, too. Right. But Pittsburgh Steelers uh, at uh, Orchard Park the following week. and Sunday night football. Oh, right. That's a Sunday night game, too. So, yeah, three of their last six prime games are, are scheduled for prime time. I'm guessing so got- that one will stay. So you got competitors, right? So you got Chargers, San Francisco, right? Two teams that you should beat that they're they're riddled with injuries and they have young quarterbacks that you shouldn't have much issues with, but they both teams can pretty much run the ball well and you struggled with that. But regardless of that, you got Pittsburgh. So you line up and say, okay, good. Josh, this is Ben Roethlisberger. You want to put your stamp on the NFL and want to get into the big boy conversation, you go out there and you outplay him. Period. It's Josh versus Ben that night. Who plays the best wins that game? At Denver. So that's that's probably the the breather that's uh, left on this schedule is uh, at Denver. But it's it's tough to breathe in Denver. Right. No pun intended. (laughs) So, so those games are the ones that, as a coach, you really want to harp on a little bit more and and over prepare your guys for that game and make those guys feel like you just won. Say you just won all four of those games in a row, and you come to that game and said, "Okay, cool." Um, Or is it three in a three in a row? And you just battled. You just went to the West Coast. You just had a um, Anthony Lynn in the Chargers. That's that are 2-0 versus Sean, right? You beat them, so it's okay, good. We just whoop them. They, they beat us two years or two times in a row. And then you go against Ben, you beat Ben, and you go into Denver. Denver could be the game that a lot of guys just try to take a, a sigh of, of, of relief and say, oh, we don't have to play against a, a top-notch team. But that's when professionals jump in and, and, you, and you lose a game like that. So those are the games that you want to stay more sharp and more ready in and pull out a, a, a game that might be sluggish and still find a way to win in Denver. Because, again, it's on the road. It's an AFC game, and you want to win that to put yourself in a pretty good position for the strong playoff run that you seem to be on. And not a primetime game. So you'll be coming off back-to-back primetime games with a primetime game uh, in Foxborough coming up the next week. So that spotlight, yeah, that is when you would naturally – like you say, you know, like, all right, uh, let's, we, we got a chance. We got a little room to breathe right here. We have a little a chance to, you know, not take it easy, but it's sub, it's, it creeps into your subconscious. Right. You're, when that, you're a human so, being. so when you look at when that turkey gets cut, right, it's now cooking time, right? The season has now started. What, 
the the games that just happened before, you just want to put yourself in a good situation where you're over 500 and you're c- controlling your own destiny. And that's a position that the Bills have been in the last two years. So now you see where you truly are um, as a franchise um, and as a position player, where you are as a professional. How are you going to handle success with winning seven games or eight or nine or ten and going into Foxborough knowing that you are the better team? So whenever you're the lead dog, and a lot of people always want to say um, front runners are – front runners look down upon, right? But in order to be a front runner, you got to be in the lead. you got to be a winner to be a front, a front runner, right? And most winners are front runners. So when you are in the lead and you're front runner and people are coming up now to hunt you, what's your take on it? How are you going to prepare and how are you going to play that game? Right? And you go up to Foxborough, you put it on them again and say, world, we are here. And we're here to stay. And it wasn't a fluke, uh, a Zimmer punch out at the end that won us the game. We can actually line up and beat you bad in your house and go home and celebrate. I guess there's two. We, we don't know enough to really talk about the Dolphins game. Uh, but that uh, that obviously could be a, a crucial a crucial matchup that brings back a lot of the old memories of the, of a rivalry that's really kind of withered uh, because the bills and the dolphins haven't, uh, haven't been that great, but uh, you'd have to go back to the nineties when, you know, Marino and Jim Kelly were going at it on a year to year basis. It'll get the fans all lathered up. Well, you Can I know- just say, I, I hope that game matters because if the bills play well enough in the five games before that, they can go in and clinch the division, not need to beat Miami and probably won't put much out there to try to beat Miami that week. So I hope, even though this goes against maybe what the Bills fans want, I hope that the division is on the line when those two teams play again, and it will be a bit of a revival of that rivalry that's been dormant for a long time. Well, if you look at the Miami schedule, they have, I mean, they got a pretty good schedule to to win some games and make that game a serious game and matter uh, at the end of the season. And have you seen Miami in the last few weeks? They're playing – Darn good. They're playing real good defense. They're playing like hell on special teams. They're they're kicking butt on special teams. They're getting turnovers, right? They're turning. They're turning. They're using their turnovers and scoring points, right? And they can pass rush. They can stop the run, and they can run the ball. And they got the lefty back there pulling the trigger. Best player in Alabama history. No doubt about it. I said it. They've got. The Dolphins have the Broncos. Winnable game. The Jets. Winnable the, game. The Bengals. Winnable game. The Chiefs, the Patriots, the Raiders, and then the Bills in Week 17. So three games they should win, probably two that you would say they have a chance against the Patriots and the Raiders. They probably don't beat the Chiefs. Um, but a possibility for them to win five of – uh, those games heading into that week 17 game against the bills. But I don't know, you know, that's where we find out, is this a young team that is, you know, going to have a, a hot middle part of the season? Are they capable of winning five of these final games heading into, uh, you know, that week 17 game? I don't know. We'll find out how far along they are. Cause if they do win five, of those games, they're already on a, what is it? A five game winning streak right now. So, um, 
that would be a hell of a finish to the season if they win five of the next six heading into that. That would be 10 out of 11 going into that Bills game. And they're going to have some struggles, right? Every every team has that one or two game valley that they go into. But when you play defense like they're playing right now that can get after the quarterback and stop the ball from being ran down their throats and play special teams that well with Danny Crossman, what he got going on down there, blocking punts, returning punts for um, for touchdown. Yeah, where did this Danny Crossman come from? <laughs> we, we didn't see any of this Danny Crossman when he was coaching the Bills special teams. What do you mean? You didn't see um, any kicks get returned to the house? Like a punt return? I didn't see a lot of dynamic special teams play out of the Bills uh, when Danny Crossman was the coordinator. I'm going to say it again. There are good coaches. There aren't great coaches. There are great players that make coaches look good. And if you don't have great players, you're you're just an average coach. There was a guy in Cleveland um, that left Cleveland and went to New England, and he's the greatest coach of all time. But when he was in Cleveland, his name wasn't even mentioned, right, because you got players. I've always kind of wondered about this. I could see a lot of different phases of special teams where the coaching matters, but actually returning the kicks and punts, that seems to be, you know, one man and his ability more than anything on the football field, right? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, it, it's, it's one or two blocks that you pick up. You make the first guy miss. That, the first guy's on, on the returner, which the Bills got a guy back there, played at the Citadel. He got coached by a pretty good guy, Gerald Dixon. Um, but he finds a way, <laughs> he finds a way to make guys miss, and I mean he's a key contributor in, on that whole entire team. So, in my time with the Bills, we never really had a punt returner that you were scared of, or that could yeah, eat, a punt catcher. Yeah, a punt return, Yeah, that can feel the ball. That's Fairly a well. yeah. Leotis was, was. That's a joke from from before your time. Uh, Gerald, there was uh, Chris Watson. You were when you were a little baby, a punt returner in in uh, in Buffalo, in which I happened to be the reporter, even though I didn't cover the Bills on a regular basis. I happened to ask Wade Phillips the question. Chris Watson was awful, and uh, and Wade Phillips said, "Well, he's not really a punt returner. He's he's a punt catcher." And it was actually kind of one of the things that helped push Wade out. It became a subject of ridicule. Is that Wade Phillips doesn't even return punts anymore. He just catches them. He doesn't even because he was. He, anyways, take a look so at Chris he, Watson's stats that year. Everything was a he, fair catch. And I think he averaged right. two yards. Even though you think that Chris Watson was before my time, I have to play with Chris. No kidding. I with Chris and um in Detroit, cornerback. Yeah. yeah. A punt catching cornerback. Yeah, was Chris from Eastern Michigan or Eastern? Was, I forget where Chris is from, but yeah, Chris played corner. He left Detroit and um and came over to Buffalo. Uh, but see, Watt was all right, guy, man. We knew that he wasn't a, a punt returner. That was on Easter, Eastern Eastern Illinois. Eastern Illinois. Okay, I know it was something Eastern, but yeah, yeah, Chris. I played with Chris. Tony Romo's alma mater. Yeah, Sean Payton, right? Jimmy. Well, Gerald, uh, thanks for uh, giving us your thoughts here. Um, I and uh, you know enjoy your Sunday off. I don't know uh, what you're going to watch with no Bills game, with just uh, whatever happens to be on. You keep on saying Sunday off, like I'm like I'm working, man. 
<laughs> my Sundays are always <laughs> You're always working. Sunday? If you're a scout, you're always working. You can't just sit and enjoy a football game, right? You're always scouting it. Um, I guess. I enjoy the games when I'm watching, and I don't really care who wins. So that's – I'm enjoying them now. But aren't you still scouting, though? I mean, you're, you're making mental notes. You're watching the game as – you're not just absorbing the game like a, like a fan would. No, I, I tried. I tried doing that, but it never works. And most of the time, I got to get away from my wife because she's like, "All right, you just said touchdown, and the guy didn't even finish running yet." I'm like, "Yeah, there's 22 on the field. There's 20 behind him, and that other guy's not catching touchdown. Get out the way." So yeah, I look at it that way. You're right. I'm always working when I'm not supposed to. Well, thanks for giving us your time, as always. And uh, we'll get you next week since this is now a permanent thing. You're you're trapped and you're you're stuck with it now. You're oh, on the man. hook, Jonah, Jonah. We got we got to get on your UB guys, man. They're rolling. Yeah, we need our own podcast without Tim and Matt. We can just talk about those things all night. Jonah, you got to get with my agents. I I cost a bag <laughs> of potato chips and some some peanuts and maybe all some right. good um what some good water. What what's this? <laughs> peanuts and potato chips. What's this? I'm that's down. That's mean. all I needed to hear. I Did I miss the reference or what else is involved? But that that's what my agent said. I gotta get out of this deal with, with Oh, I see. Oh, oh, I see, I see, I see. Oh, well, I have to provide the press box snacks. That's new. I, I've never had to do that before. <laughs> Potluck press box. Hey man, high demand, man. I'm 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 being a diva now. All right. I'll get you some wings. You said you've never been to Elmo's. We'll get you some Elmo's wings, you know, one of these days probably in the new millennium, but yeah. <laughs> someday before the end of time, twenty twenty four, we'll get to it. We'll yeah. get it. We'll get it to go, and we'll sit in a we'll sit in a park uh, on a park bench, and uh, we'll find a table at uh, out at the beach or something at LaSalle Park, and we'll we'll have Elmos and and uh, watch the waves. Wow, you guys, tell me how the waves look and tell me how the wings taste. I don't know if I'm gonna make that trip. Thanks, Gerald.